following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Whenever I am driving down in the Keys, like on vacation or something, I don't know if you've done that recently, but there's this long stretch of highway, especially when you get down farther south into the lower Keys, long stretches of highway, and there's just gorgeous blue water on either side. And as you're looking out over the water, you'll see that there's these islands out there. Not, they're not other keys where there's roads going to, but they're the keys that are, it just looks like there's no, nothing there. They're undeveloped, and you'll see these islands out there in the water. And I always have this thought. I don't know if you've ever had this thought. I'm driving, I'm like, what if I just claimed one of those islands? Just took a little boat out there, build myself a little. I mean, does anyone actually own that island? I mean, I could, I could go for owning an island. That'd be nice, have my own little place no one around, just there. Maybe I could take my family to just nothing in any direction. And just like, what would it be like to have, have my own little island that I can just get away and escape to no one around? Anyone else had that thought before, that, that kind of that idea? Okay, yeah. Well, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. The bad news is none of the islands in the Florida Keys are unclaimed. If you were hoping that there was some islands you could just go take, you can't. It's somebody's territory, okay? In fact, um, the bad news is pretty much your chances of finding an unclaimed island anywhere in the world is very minimal, okay? With satellite now, pretty much all of the islands everywhere are claimed. You can't just go set up shop on an island and take it. There are some unclaimed parts of the earth, but they're the most inhabitable places like the center of Antarctica where the temperatures never get up to freezing. So if you want to live there, go for it. But other than that, there's no unclaimed islands. That's the bad news. The good news is I actually found out that there are companies that sell islands. So while you can't just go claim one that's somebody's territory, you could actually purchase an island for yourself. They actually, I mean, that's kind of an interesting job to be like an island realtor. Okay, they sell private islands to people. Now, I, I mean, I'm not looking for anything exorbitant here, okay? Just a small little island. So for example, this is an island right here that is actually for sale in the Florida Keys. This is called Pretty Joe Rock. It's off of uh, Key West a ways. It's all by itself. This little, this little island, you have to take a boat to get there. It's got a small house. So if, that's, if you're looking for an island, maybe you put in an offer on this. It's not cheap, but maybe you put in an offer on this little island. Now, maybe you look at that and you're like, man, I don't know. I feel kind of claustrophobic on that. Well, before you say that, look at this view from Pretty Joe Rock. That's, I just feel relaxed looking at that. I might make that my computer desktop later, just stare at it for a while. Okay, that, that's not a, not a bad deal there. So the, the problem is you can buy an island, but really the problem is there's no unclaimed islands anywhere in the world anymore. You can't just go exploring, find an island, set up shop there. There's no unclaimed island. If you just go set up somewhere, you are taking over someone's territory. You know, what we're studying here with the story of Nehemiah is we're looking at building something. And we're talking about all these principles of leadership that surround building something in the story of Nehemiah. But when it comes to leadership, whatever it is that you're trying to build... 
it will necessarily mean that you're going to infringe on someone's territory, real or perceived. So for example, on a real category, let's say you're starting a business. Let's say what you're building is I'm building a company. I'm starting a business. I I want this to to do well. Well, that means you're really going to take probably some clients or some accounts from some other businesses. So in a very real way, you're going to take territory from someone else. Let's say you're just like, look, I'm not trying to start a business. I'm just trying to build a career. I'm just trying to do really well. And so let's say you get promoted. Well, that's someone else's promotion. Someone else wanted that promotion. And so there's a way in which you're going to be taking territory in a very real way. But there's also a way in which sometimes we can take territory in a perceived way. Have you ever had a a friend that got a promotion? They work someplace completely else. You don't even work in the same place they did. But they got a promotion and for some reason you felt maybe a little jealous. You're like, man, how did... Why am I, or maybe their company that they had, maybe their company is doing well and it's in a completely different industry than yours, but there's something about that that you're jealous of that, them doing well. And you're like, how does that work? It's not even infringing on my literal territory, but you know what? It may be that in my heart, I wanted that success. I wanted that promotion. That promotion was mine, not literally, but in a perceived way. See, you're, uh, someone may take territory in a way that's perceived and there's jealousy and envy. All that to say... When it comes to building something, whatever it is, without fail, there's one thing that it will bring, opposition. When it comes to building something, without fail, one thing will always be there, it's opposition. Let's take a second and look at what happened in the story of Nehemiah. We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 17. It says this. This is Nehemiah speaking. Then I said to them, this is the people that live near Jerusalem. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. This is one of the most catalytic moments in the entire story of Nehemiah. This is like the spark going to the fuse in the book of Nehemiah. If, if you're just now joining us in this series, here's kind of the backstory. Nehemiah is a high-ranking servant in the king's palace. The king we're talking about is the king of Persia, the ruler of the known world. And he's a high-ranking servant. Um, and he, he's also a Jewish man, and he knows that for the last 150 years, Jerusalem has been in ruins. And the most dangerous part about it is the walls are broken down, and it's very dangerous to live there. And so this, this guy, Nehemiah, says to the king, hey, can I go back and ask the king's permission? Can you send me back to rebuild Jerusalem, especially the walls? And the king says, yes, you can go. And he gives him these letters that he takes that have permission to go rebuild it. He sends some horsemen with him. He even lets him use some of the timber from his forests. He gives him some supplies to use. And he sends him back to rebuild these walls. And this is the moment where he's standing before the whole population uh, of that region, all the Jewish people that live around there. And he says, we're going to do it. And he casts this, you see his incredible vision casting skills and how he says, look, here's the urgency that's around us. Look, the walls are broken down. It's so dangerous. 
He says, man, here's the plan before us. We're going to rebuild this wall. And he says, and here's God who's behind us. And he casts this vision, and it's this powerful moment where the entire group, they say, let us rise up and build. What a great statement. Let's rise from the ashes and let's build. And then it says, and they strengthened their hands for the good work. It's like they rolled up their sleeves and said, okay, let's get to work. I mean, can you imagine what it's like in Jerusalem? 150 years it's been in ruins, and they're going to rebuild it. I mean, for generations, their, their ancestors have lamented that Jerusalem is in ruins, and they are the generation that's going to do something about it. How powerful. Let's rise up and build, they say. We're going to do it. Can you imagine the buzz that's got to be around Jerusalem? People talking about it and, and dreaming about it and thinking what it's going to be like, and they're meeting in their homes. Man, can you imagine when this is rebuilt? And, and what could be, what, imagine what could happen, and there's this buzz. And I want you to look at the very next verse. The very next verse. This is an exciting moment, a catalytic moment. Look at the very next thing that happens. We're going to look in verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us And said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I want you to see this is the very next verse. Talk about a bucket of cold water. I mean, they're excited. I mean, this is the first time in generations and they're about to rebuild. I mean, there's a buzz. There's momentum. There's people excited. And these, these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, these are the main villains of this entire book. I mean, you will grow to hate these guys, okay? They are, they're the worst. And the very next verse, verse 19, what do they say? They jeer at them. They despise them. Now, who are these guys? Let's get, let's get a little background on Sanballat and Tobiah. Actually, Remember, the story of Nehemiah is a historical story. In fact, archaeologists found a papyrus that references Sanballat as the governor of Samaria. So this is, a, this is a historical story. This guy, Sanballat, was a local governor of a, of a region right close to Jerusalem. Tobiah is a servant. He's, so he's a, he serves as a, as a ruler in some capacity, some kind of leader for the Ammonites. That's also very close by to Jerusalem. And they, the entire story of Nehemiah, they are going to be up against opposing the rebuilding of this wall constantly. Now, what's their deal? Why can't they just mind their own business? I mean, why are they so, why can't they just, what happens in Jerusalem is none of their business. Why can't they just leave them alone? Okay, let's get a little background of what's happening. I want to show you a map. Go ahead and pull up this this map. All right, this is of, it's probably hard to see because there's a lot of lines and words on there, but this is the Mediterranean. You can see on the far left of the map, there's Spain. Uh, You can see in the middle, you see the boot, there's Italy and Greece. And look at the far right, that's the most eastern edge on the far right, eastern edge of the Mediterranean. And if you see, there, right there is, uh, all the way on the right, one of those dots is Jerusalem. That's where we're talking about. And I want you to see all these lines, because this is a map from about that time period. And what you see with the, with the red dotted line is the, um, 
what you see the red dotted line around there is where Greece controls, and you see a lot of the trade route for Greece. And I want you to see the blue solid line that circles around. That's the, the empire of Phoenicia, and they're trading already all through the Mediterranean. In fact, what's interesting is you can see the blue line circles all the way around to Spain and up to Britain. At this time period, the Phoenicians had already made it all the way to Britain, and there's trade going all through that region. And it goes out on the far right, you'll see three dots on the coast close together. That's, where, that's Tyre and Sidon. Those are like the, some of the main ports of Phoenicia, and just below that is Jerusalem. So right in that region, why this is so important with Sambalat and Tobiah, is right in that region is an important crossroads for trade. Now if you can imagine, this is just the western portion of the known world, because if we extended the map to the right, we haven't even gotten Babylon and Persia, which is far to the right, or Egypt that's down into the south. So really, what's on the right of this map is like the hub of the known world. And so right in that region, right at the very far eastern edge of the Mediterranean, right beneath Phoenicia, is so critical for trade coming from the, coming from the far east, from Babylon and Persia, coming up from the south, from Egypt, and right there around Jerusalem is a critical juncture for trade. So you got Sanballat and Tobiah, they run these, they're in this region right around Jerusalem, and they know if Jerusalem is built up, they've got competitors. The commerce is going to be spread out a little bit, their profits are going to be minimized. They know if Jerusalem's built up, it's going to cost them financially. This is one of the main reasons they're going to oppose it every step of the way. What's their issue with Jerusalem? It's infringing on their territory. This is our spot. This is our spot. Don't come rebuilding this area. Don't take some of our profit. Don't take some of our commerce. You can see this is a critical location. This is one of the main reasons Sanballat and Tobiah are constantly going to be against rebuilding Jerusalem in this entire book. You see this immediately comes up. But I want you to look at what was their jeer. Look specifically at what Sanballat says and Tobiah they say. Don't say, what are you doing? And then they say, why are you rebelling against the king? Man, that's, just, that's not just a jeer, right? That's not just, they're not just, that's not just a put down. That's a threat. Those are dangerous words. They're acting like you rebuilding Jerusalem. Man, that is a threat to the king. Man, if you build this, you're probably going to rebel against the king of Persia. I can't believe that you're doing this. Or you want to bring the wrath of Persia on you? It's a threat. These are dangerous words. They're trying to inject fear into the people of Jerusalem. Okay, and I want you to see Nehemiah's response in verse 20. Look what he says. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is, man, this is the perfect response when facing opposition and criticism. But first out, before we look at what he did say, I want you to see what he didn't say. Don't you think it was so tempting for Nehemiah to say, rebellion against the king, man, I, I have letters from the king. In fact, I, went, I showed you the letters from the king. I, I brought the letters in and it says that he went and showed all the governors. Rebellion against the king. You, you know that I'm not rebelling against the king. I have letters. See, look at my letters. He says, 
how could I be rebelling against the king? He sent his horsemen with me. I have the Persian horsemen right here. You're, you're telling me I'm rebelling against the king? You see the, the timber that we're cutting down in the king's forest. How could I possibly be rebelling against the king? I have his timber right here. Don't you think it would be so easy for Nehemiah to just jump in and say, so wait a minute, so let's talk about who's really rebelling against the king. Actually, you're rebelling against the king. By you saying this, by you threatening and opposing this, this is something the king decreed. So who's really rebelling against the king? You're rebelling against the king. Imagine how easy it would have been and how much Nehemiah wanted to just put them in their place, just tell them like it is, and just get down to their level and get into that argument. Doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't say, no, no, the king is behind this. No, no, what does he actually say? He says, God will cause us to prosper. Man, he doesn't even engage that debate. He doesn't even, doesn't even bother getting into that argument. He really says what really matters. Is he's almost, he's subtly more respectfully kind of saying, really, that's irrelevant because God's behind this. It doesn't even matter because God's behind this. He doesn't get emotional. He doesn't get involved. He just says, God is behind this. And the second thing is he says, and so we will rise up and build. Don't you love that he took the same phrase that the people had just used and now he adopts it? And it's almost like he's saying, no, what we just said is what we're going to do. We said we're going to rise and build. This is not going to distract us from our task. We are going to rise and build. And then the last thing he says is, and you have no right or claim here. You have no sway. You have no authority. You, you have no say in this sphere. This is God's place. You have no say in what's happening here. Here's what I love about that is so often when we get opposition and criticism, and even if it's absolutely absurd, here, here's what's so maddening about Sanballat and Tobiah. They knew all that. They knew about the letters. He'd shown them to them. They knew about the letters. They could see the horsemen. They could see the timber that was the king's. They knew all of that. They're just trying to sow fear in them. They knew all of that. But what's so tempting in the, in the face of absurd criticism is sometimes it plants a seed of doubt in our own minds and we walk away affected by it. Even though that's irrelevant and we squash it, sometimes we can walk away and still silently be operating against it. And it's really gotten inside of our minds. Not too long ago, I was talking to a buddy of mine and uh, he's a younger guy, early 20s, and um, he says, um, hey man, I'm in a soccer league you, man, you should come out and play soccer with us sometime. And I'm thinking, it's because you recognize my superior athletic skills, isn't it? That's why you want me to come to your soccer league. Well, consider it, you know. And he says, oh, look, man. He says, look, don't worry about it. It's, you'll be fine there. It's not just a bunch of young guys. And I said, okay, um, all right. And I kind of scratch my head and I, I'm thinking about this. And I'm like, did he just say I'm old? I'm pretty sure he just said, oh, I got home to Rebecca. I'm like, am I old? Which is, you know, never a question that she's going to answer. She's like, what, what is old anyway? I don't know what old, the Grand Canyon's old. I don't know what old is. And I'm like, I, I am not, I'm not old. I'm a spring chicken. I'll show that guy. Now, where's the icy hot? I just pulled a muscle right here on my shoulder, Okay. Sometimes when you can hear criticism, it comes into your brain and even if you think it's crazy and you squash it and you put it down and you walk away, you're still fighting that enemy in your mind days later. Now you've adjusted how you're operating and you're letting it affect you days later. 
years later, the rest of your life, criticisms that got in your brain. And now you're fighting an invisible army that's not even there anymore. Don't you love what Nehemiah says? He declares, you have no right or portion here. God is behind it. End of the story. Not going to get involved in this discussion. Am I going to get involved in this argument? He says, he says, okay, whatever about the king and the rebellion. He doesn't even address the rebellion. He doesn't even mention that. He says, God's behind it. We're going to rise and build. You have no portion here. Let's get back to work. See, here's what we see in this, in this text. Man, when it comes to building, you realize this building the wall, as we continue this story, we're going to hear very little about the wall itself. We're going to spend the rest of this as they start building, we're going to see how they deal with opposition. Because really what this is about, it's not just about the shovels, it's about the swords as well. Look at this. How bad does this get? I just want to give you a sneak peek later in the book. Okay, they're jeering them from the outside, but can I show you where this ends up going? This is how bad it gets. Jump ahead to Nehemiah chapter 4. Look at what it says in, in verse 15. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from, look at this, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that they each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from us. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Do you see how bad it's going to get? Like now, they're just saying mean things to sow fear in their hearts. Nonsense. In a couple chapters, they're ready for a battle. They've got some guys that half of them can't work because they're standing guard. Some of them are carrying burdens, but they can't carry nearly as much because they can only carry with one hand because they've got to carry a weapon with the other. Those that are working, they all have a sword attached to their side the entire time. They've got someone watching the horizon constantly so that if there's any movement of any army or militia or any group that's coming to attack, they'll blow the trumpet and they'll rally. They've got a battle plan already. This is how bad it's going to get. This is just the beginning. See, here's what we're learning. When it comes to building something, you don't just need a shovel. You need a sword. When it's come to building something, here's the mistake sometimes we make. Sometimes when we try to build something, we're only thinking, okay, what does the wall need to look like? All right, we should be this about this high, and these are the supplies we need. And we get completely blindsided by the fact that there's opposition. We, we know we're supposed to have a shovel, but we forget that we're going to need a sword too. No matter what the good work is that we're doing, it will face opposition. It will face opposition. If you, think of it like this. If you try to be a force for good, you'll be forced into battle. If you're praying, 
dangerous prayers. You say, God, what do you want me to build? If you're wanting to be a force for good, you will be forced into battle. And what's, what's dangerous is sometimes that catches us off guard. And sometimes we're in this mode where we're like, look, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to do the good thing. I'm trying to do God's thing. So why is this so hard? And sometimes it's the surprise that gets us the most. Look, I'm, try, I'm fighting for justice. I'm fighting for truth. I'm fighting for reality. I'm trying to just help people. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to do your work, God. I, this is a good thing I'm doing. So why is there so much pushback? Why is there so many bad things? And sometimes it's the surprise that knocks us off kilter. But you see, Nehemiah is so calm. He's collected. It's expected. He knew this was coming. So he's ready for response. He's not like, what? What did they say? Well, tell him this. I've got letters and I've got, I've got all the wood from his forest and I got the horse. He's, none of that. He's ready for it. He's calm and collected. Sometimes the biggest danger is not knowing that we will need shovels and swords when we're building something. You say, yeah, but why does it have to be like that? Are, are you sure? Because especially when you're doing God's work, it just seems like, doesn't God come behind you and make it easy and make everything fall into place and make everyone get along? Yeah, but you know what, what the scripture tells us is that we're not just fighting a fleshly battle. We're fighting a spiritual battle and there's spiritual forces working against us. You say, what do you mean? Well, let, let me read you a couple passages. Look at what it says. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Look at what this says. This is to you. He, he's calling you beloved. Beloved, he's saying Christians. It's a tender term. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't you love what Peter's saying to you? Saying you're in a trial? That's hard, that's difficult. But one thing, you, you may be grieving, you may be angry, you may be suffering. He says, but one thing you shouldn't be is surprised. It's like, why are you acting? Why, this is some strange, bizarre thing that's happening to me. He says, why would you be surprised? You're sharing in Christ's sufferings. He says, if you've taken the name Christian... You're following after a man whose most defining characteristic, Christ, was that he was crucified and died on a cross, surrendering his life for humanity. He says, you're taking that man's name. Why would you be surprised when you too face fiery trials? Listen to how Timothy, Paul puts it to Timothy. It says this in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen to this one in Luke. These are, these are Christ's own words. Luke chapter 10, verse 3. This is Jesus sending out his disciples. Go your way, he says. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Christian, trials are going to come. Anything you try and build will face opposition. And the closer you get, the more potent what you're trying to build is for the kingdom of God, the more fierce and fiery the opposition will be. The more fierce that it will be, and the one thing we cannot afford to be is surprised. If you're going to be a force for good, you'll be forced into battle. If you're going to build something, you need a shovel and a sword. So what are you building? What are you building for God? 
A marriage? You know, one of the most, one of the biggest lies that our culture has fallen into in terms of marriage is that once marriage gets tough, it must mean that we don't love each other anymore. And we define love as this wimpy, this thin infatuation, and we say love by, it's easy to feel like loving. And once I don't feel like loving, I must not be compatible with this person. I might not, must not supposed to be meant to be with this person. No, you're, you're building something. You're building something incredible. You're building something godly. It's the greatest thing you're going to build. You're going to face opposition. There's going to be tough parts. You're going to have to gut it out. You're going to have to work through conflict. You're going to have to grit your teeth. You're going to have to push through. And that's where it, that on the other side is the fruit and the glory of the labor. That's on the other side is the beauty and the passion and the love and the romance. It's pushing through that, but there will be tough seasons. You're trying to build a godly home? Are you expecting it to be easy? How about friendships? Man, God loves when we have rich, healthy, deep, intimate friendships. But some of us are in a pattern where we're in a friendship just long enough till we get into a conflict and we're like, this is too hard, and we back away. Are you trying to build something? Expect opposition. And church, if you're a Christian, then there's another sphere in which you have to think about this. If you're a Christian, that means you belong to, to the church. You are a body part of the body of Christ is how it's defined in Scripture. Uh, if the church is like a house, metaphorically, you're one of the bricks. You are a part of it. And so that means that we are building something together and that means we will, at times, face opposition. So here's what this looks like. Maybe you're a brand new Christian. And you're a brand new Christian, you're fired up. I mean, you can't believe that God loves you. You can't believe that Jesus would die on the cross to save you and forgive you. And that you have eternal life. You have your faith in that. You know for sure. And you're fired up, but Jesus loves you that much. And you go around and you share it with your friends. You're like, can you, this is what happened to me. And you're, you can't believe that, that he loves you. And you share that with your friends. And then you share it with your family. And what do you get back so often? Opposition. Who are you? I don't know you anymore. Why are you doing this? Why won't you come out with us? Or why won't you do this? I, I don't know who you are. I don't understand who this person is. And you're shocked. Man, stay calm. Don't be surprised. Maybe a, a little serving and following Jesus a little longer and you start serving in the church. Maybe you're even growing to a leadership position. And then there's the first time that you see that serving in a church, that churches can go through seasons that are messy. And maybe you've been in a, in a season in church that was messy and maybe you're, you're like, man, I, uh, that was a rough season. I, didn't know, I thought church was supposed to be healthy and happy and, and it is supposed to be that. But it's also a place that's trying to take turf for the kingdom of God. And so sometimes the enemy can get in and try and stir up and make it messy. But here's what can happen. You can leave one church and be like, I can't believe I got my feelings hurt and it's not supposed to be like that. I thought they were supposed to be better Christians and you come to this new place, you're like, man, this place is everything that place wasn't and this is, man, there's nothing wrong with here. No one ever hurts anyone's feelings and everyone gets along and you go to a new place for about five minutes. You're like, well, that place is terrible. I go here and now you're, and you can bounce back and forth. Do you realize, man, this is a battle. We're in a battle. And sometimes, the scariest thing is sometimes someone can serve, they got saved in a church, they grow in a church, they're in leadership in a church, and then that church goes through a rough season, they're like, whoa, this isn't what church is supposed to be like, and they, they back out and they say, you know what, I'm not going to do church at all anymore, you know what I'm going to do, it's just Jesus and me, I don't need church, I don't need this. 
Man, the enemy's won. Man, it's a battle. And we're going to link arms and we're going to push forward. And we're going to and we're going to expect man there's hard times that come no matter what you're trying to build. There's going to be tough times. Be ready. It's going to be hard. There's going to be battles. You're going to need a shovel and you're going to need a sword. And why are you going to need that? Because the one you're following, Jesus, your savior, he came here to do battle. And do you know what he battled for? He battled for your eternity. He wrestled. Do you know what he was wrestling? He was wrestling death itself. And when it looked like death had won because he died on the cross, it wasn't ready for the third day when he rose again from the dead having victory over death itself. Do you know that he suffered and did battle for you? And now we battle for his kingdom. I want to close with this poem. And this is for any of you out there who are battle-weary and have wounds. You're trying to build a marriage and you have wounds. You're trying to be a Christian in a tough environment and you've got wounds. You've tried to serve the Lord and do the right thing and you have wounds. I want to read this to you by a woman named Amy Carmichael. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yes, as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? For following after Jesus will have wounds and scars just like he will. Church, be ready as we're building and we're praying dangerous prayers and as you're building whatever it is in your life that you're getting ready to build, can you be ready? Be ready for the opposition because he will bring you to a moment where the only answer is yes, but this is God's work and God's behind me. And he will bring you to a place that that's all you've got left. Because that's the safest place that you could be. This morning, maybe you are realizing for the first time that he did battle for you. Maybe you thought that God sat back in heaven all safe and, and looking down and has all these demands on you. But you didn't realize that, no, he left heaven. Jesus Christ came to earth to do battle for you. He suffered and died. His body broken, his blood shed. He died for you. Why? He was paying for your sins, washing you clean so that death can have no sting on you. So death has no power over you so that even when you breathe your last, your eyes will be opened in glory at the side of Jesus in the presence of your Savior. He fought for that for you. This morning, if maybe today is the day you need to accept that and put your faith in Jesus for the first time and realize that salvation is just free. Forgiveness is free. And he's calling you to join the adventure of following after him. Church, we're going to close this morning by sharing in communion. See, what this is, it's a small meal. It's bread and and juice, and it dates back to Jesus himself on the night before he suffered and died and did battle for us on the cross. On the night before, he had a meal with his disciples. 
And there was bread, and he took the bread, and he broke the bread. He said, this is like my body broken for you. This symbolizes it. He says, it's broken for you. And then he took, he passed it around. They all ate the bread. And then he took the wine, and he, he poured it out right in front of them. They're seeing the wine, the, the deep red wine going into the glass. And he says, this is like my blood that's going to be poured out for you. And he passes it around, and they all took it. He says, I want you to do this meal, the broken bread, the poured out wine. I want you to take this meal because I want you to remember. I want you to taste how I did battle for you, how I suffered for you, how I wrestled down death and defeated it for you. And so for generations, all over the world, for generations, we have taken this in obedience to our Savior. We've taken the broken bread and the juice to remind ourselves of the great sacrifice that Jesus did to buy our souls, to fight for us, to give us freedom from death itself. So this morning, we're going to take communion together. Here's what it's going to look like in just a second. You're going to come to these two middle aisles. Some of you can go to the back. There's stations in the back. Some of you can come to the forward, and you're going to take one of these plastic cups, and you're going to take a piece of the bread, and you're just going to eat it and drink it and go back to your seats, and then we're going to close in a song. And here's what I would say to you. If you're here this morning, you're like, look, I'm just not sure where I'm at with Jesus yet. I'm not sure if I'm ready to put my faith in him as my Savior. That, that's fine. I totally respect that journey. That's between you and God. And so here's what I would say. Hold off from taking communion, taking this small meal. Hold off because this is a declaration that you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. But some of you today may be saying, no, today is the day I'm accepting the sal- my salvation. I'm being forgiven. I'm putting my faith in Jesus today. Today is the first time. Then celebrate that and mark that by taking communion for the first time. And for those of you who are putting your faith in Jesus for the first time, you'll notice there's some wooden cups right in the middle. That wooden cup is for you. Take it and drink the juice and take that to never forget this day when your sins were washed clean by the blood of Jesus. For the rest of us, we'll take these uh, plastic cups, but for some of you, you need to remember this day with the wooden cup. That today is the day you put your faith in Jesus. Take a second to get your heart ready before Jesus. Get ready to proclaim this meal. Jesus, you suffered and defeated death for us. We thank you. You may begin coming forward and going to the back whenever you're ready. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954 954- Four three two zero three two one, or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.